CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for Bill Nygut for the first time ever. Ah, hopefully I can do him proud. Yesterday was a big day in Georgia politics, uh, in Georgia and across the nation. Here in the state, it was the first day of early in-person voting for the January 5th runoff elections. And according to data from the Secretary of State's office, about 168,000 Georgians showed up to cast their ballots in person, a strong marker of what we're expecting will be a record-setting runoff. We'll talk a little bit more about that later in the show today. Yesterday also marked a key next step in the presidential election. The 538 members of the Electoral College met in each of the 50 states and the District of Columbia to cast their votes for president and vice president. And they made it official. Joe Biden will be the 46th president of the United States. So there's a lot to talk about, and I have a great panel with me here to discuss. Joining me is Renee Alegria, president and CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital Network. It's so good to see you, Renee. How are you doing this Tuesday? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, congratulations on uh, today. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll wait to see how that goes. Uh, <laughs> next on our panel is Dr. Karen Owen, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of West Georgia. Hopefully on, on your winter break, I, I assume. Yes. It started about a few days ago, so it's a nice, a nice end of a semester. You made it. Yes. Next is Howard Franklin, a Democratic political strategist with Ohio River South. Welcome back to Political Rewind, Howard. Thank you guys for having me. It's a nice respite from all the campaign work that's still going on. <laughs> and some of your, your clients at the moment, you're working with the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, right? Yes. Uh, we worked with them during the general election, and they brought us back for the runoff and a number of other groups that are uh, deeply engaged in these two Senate runoffs. Can't wait to talk about that. And last but not least, we have Heath Garrett, a Republican political strategist, a longtime advisor to Senator Johnny Isaacson, Attorney General Chris Carr, Governor Brian Kemp, among many others. How are you doing, Heath? Uh, Tomorrow's great. I really enjoy being with you and glad to be here on your first day hosting. (laughs) Thanks so much, guys. We have so much news to discuss, so let's dive right in. I'd like to start with Georgia's Electoral College vote yesterday. Um, In any other year, this would have been a largely symbolic event with very little attention paid to it. Uh, But this is 2020. And uh, we're coming off a historical, really ugly election. uh, And uh, nothing is without its drama these days. So let me paint the scene and then we'll, we'll go to our panel. So yesterday at noon, we had the 16 Democratic electors who gathered on the floor of the Georgia Senate to cast their votes for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for president and vice president. We had some well-known faces like Stacey Abrams, Nakima Williams. We also had some lesser known party activists and, and some up and comers as well. Um, and Karen, let's start with you. You know, for the first time in 28 years, we had Georgia electors who were casting their votes for a Democrat for president and not for a Republican. And not only that, it was a socially distanced affair. Um, how eerie is that? What, what struck you about yesterday? So I think one of the most interesting pieces for me was the fact that it actually attracted attention nationally, that people were watching actual electoral college electors vote. 
Um, this is not something that we've really paid attention to in the past, but this year it has drawn attention. Here in Georgia, I think it's interesting. It really shows the makeup of the Democratic Party and how unique and diverse the party in Georgia is. It also, I think, what struck me, too, was when um, Representative Samiri spoke. I mean, he was the one who actually was, you know, cast ballots at electoral in 1992 for Clinton. And then here he is again, casting one for Biden. So that was really unique. But again, I think it's really like, wow, I teach about the electoral college and my students ignore it. Most Americans ignore it. And then here we actually were paying attention to it yesterday. Yeah. And for the most part, it was a pretty drama free affair, especially here in Georgia. Um, the main drama was was also was in the Capitol, just in a different room where where Republicans were, uh, you know, took the unusual step of huddling and assigning a shadow group of electors. And Howard, we saw David Schaefer, the head of the state Republican Party, say that that they were doing it because in their eyes, the election is not resolved. And they were pointing to a lawsuit the president filed in Fulton County Superior Court. Yeah, I tend to take David Schaefer, who's also, you know, a former uh, state senator, at his word in this one. This feels a lot like they were just showing their fealty to our tantrum-prone president and, you know, for the record, making sure they've done everything they can to keep, uh, you know, this very unlikely-to-succeed lawsuit still in good standing. Uh, and I think we've seen a, a lot of that. But if you look at the at the general, I think, direction that the Republican Party, the Georgia GOP, has gone in, the four most visible uh, constitutional officers, the governor, lieutenant governor, uh, Attorney General Chris Carr, and obviously uh, Secretary Brad Raffensperger, have all taken some exception uh, to the president's claim that there is this widespread fraud or that we should overturn the results. I think that that is, is where most mainstream Republicans are. And I think this is a, a dangerous distraction uh, that the, the president is pursuing that might really endanger uh, Republicans' chances of holding on to control of the Senate. Heath, I'd like you to, to weigh in here. How much should we be, um, you know, thinking about the, this meeting with these shadow electors? And, and is this electoral college vote going to be a turning point for many Georgia Republicans? Are we going to start seeing more folks acknowledging Joe, Joe Biden's victory? Yeah, you know, Republican elected officials are in a tough place right now. It's, it's no surprise to anybody who's been watching the president over the last six years that he doesn't like uh, the concept of losing. Um, like he's done a lot of great things as president. There are a lot of things on here that are, you know, he's done that are tough to defend. But we as Republicans, I think two major things have happened. One, the Supreme Court last week in two decisions uh, denied the president a route through legal victory at the Supreme Court, one which even affected Georgia. And then the Electoral College, I, I do find a little humor in that all of a sudden all my Democratic friends are all of a sudden spending a lot of time looking at the Electoral College and, and praising it uh, when just a few weeks ago we were talking about eliminating it. However, uh, with all that being said, there's no question tomorrow that we as Republicans for the lion's share uh, are, are moving towards how do we keep David Perdue and Kelly Leffler there? And I think the Electoral College vote yesterday is a shift. Um, what what uh, GOP Director uh, Schaefer had to do was political and for the grassroots. Uh, and there's no question the President of the United States has no plans of conceding. Uh, and, and nobody is really surprised by that. I think everybody's pleasantly surprised that the checks and balances, like the Wall Street Journal said yesterday, the checks and balances are working. The legal processes are working. Uh, it's tough loss for us as Republicans at the top of the ballot in Georgia, but we have a lot to be happy about down ballot. 
And in particular, we have something to fight for over the next few weeks. Renee, we have three weeks until the runoff election day on, on January 5th. And as Heath mentioned, you know, we're not seeing Trump, um, you know, step back at all. We, we saw him on Twitter just the other day calling Governor Kemp a fool and a clown and demanding a special session to open up a, the, the consent decree on signature ver- verification for absentee ballots. I'm wondering if you're expecting, uh, you know, Republicans to be able to unify in these next couple of weeks. Is there enough time? Uh, listen, I, I think it's going to be tough for Republicans to to jump the hurdles that Trump has put in front of them. I mean, it's every day there's another court uh, throwing out a lawsuit around the country that we're, you know, we're, 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 we've gotten used to this, right? It's, it's not that he's that the president is doing anything uh, to help his own party. Uh, getting back to yesterday, though, and seeing the image of straight Stacey Abrams, um, you know, it, it was it was a bit of a victory lap for her. I thought she's done just such a, an incredible thing with Fair Fight and and with Mundo Hispanico. We we cover a lot of what Fair Fight has done to bring Latino voters into the light, and you know, watching her cast that vote at the podium was was pretty remarkable and certainly uh, a visual sea change of what Georgia is going to be going forward, I think. And Karen, the, the next step in the process is for Congress to, to count the electoral college votes and authorize them on January 6th. As we talked about, largely symbolic for years, no one really paid much attention. I'm wondering if you're expe- expecting much, much uh, mischief from allies of the president. We've already heard Mill Brooks of Alabama, a, a House member, uh, talking about potentially challenging some of the electors from, from Georgia, Wisconsin, and some other swing states. So I think it will actually attract attention because we've learned that this president is going to continue to be on Twitter or involved in the process. You know, come January 6th, though, these results have to go to Vice President Pence. And so Pence has to receive them as the presiding officer of the Senate. They will hold the joint session between the House and the Senate, but these will be new members of Congress. So we will actually see more Republicans on the House side. Of course, they're not in the majority, but more so you may have some that speak out. And, of course, the process allows it that if somebody's going to contest, it has to involve one senator and one House member. And so getting that uh, two members to come together to want to raise an objection will be a little bit difficult then to pass because both chambers would have to pass that they agree that there's something wrong with certifying these. And I don't think, you know, the House majority, it was the Democrats going to allow that to happen. And it's going to be tough to get some of those senators who were in tough races to begin with to want to bucket this as well. They've already come out and said Biden was the president-elect. Heath? Yeah, tomorrow, I think Karen's right on. I think the president's going to continue to make a lot of smoke around this through January the 6th. Uh, You can tell from some of his statements and from some of the statements from his advisors. Obviously, there's no real chance in the House of Representatives of Nancy Pelosi uh, uh, really listening or, or, or caring in that regard. But for us as Republicans in Georgia, this raises a really interesting and difficult task. I want to be clear, as a Republican strategist, I think those who say that you need to attack Secretary of State Raffensperger, you need to attack popular Governor Brian Kemp, you need to attack Republicans while we're in the middle of a 
of a runoff here in Georgia that's on January the 5th. I think what this does is juxtapositions, puts the president kind of against the self-interest of the Republican Party here in Georgia. And I've heard some Republican strategists say, oh, no, we got to keep attacking each other in order to motivate people to vote. I think that's the most bass backwards, you know, idea I've heard in 30 or 40 years in Georgia. And, and it, it's one of those things that where if we Republicans don't do that, all we're doing is giving a gift to Stacey Abrams uh, and to the Democratic Party. And that's the tough part because the president's not going to stop talking about this until at least January 6th, probably uh, never. It's also worth noting that that our Georgia senators might not be there on January 6th uh, for all of this uh, fighting because of the because of the runoffs. David Perdue actually loses the seat at noon on um, on January 3rd, which is the start of the new Congress, even if he is reelected. Kelly Leffler will stay until a successor is appointed. But uh, who knows if she'll be able to make it up there? Howard, you wanted to, to weigh in on this. Yeah, I, you know, I find myself in the in the rare position to be agreeing with Heath here, and I, you know, I, I can't imagine that this is a productive exercise for the Georgia GOP uh, right now. But I, I think it even goes further. I think during the general election, uh, when you had Purdue talking about his Georgia roots and all his business success, and you had Leffler trying to distinguish herself from uh, from Doug Collins and others, you even then you had what I would consider as a Democrat, a relatively forward-looking Republican Party or relatively forward-looking uh, messengers of that party. And I think, you know, during this, during this runoff, we've really devolved. We've really, you know, whether it's in the debates or in the advertisement scene, uh, those two candidates really focus on the, the Democrats and less about who they are and why they deserve to be reelected, which I also think you know, just kind of mixes up this entire cauldron of messaging that the Georgia GOP hasn't quite figured out. So I, I, I do think there's going to be um, some degree of a reckoning once we get past, uh, you know, agreeing that this that, uh, pre- that President Joe Biden is the rightful uh, winner of this election. But I don't know if that's going to happen in time for the January 5th elections. Renee? I, I, do, I do think it's interesting um, in that will the Democrats push on through? As the Republicans are obviously flailing with messages that are contradicting one another, uh, will will the Dems bring it bring it home as it, as it were? Uh, I, I think that uh, the question is still out there. Nothing is a sure thing. We're go- you know we have three weeks, right? What can happen in those three weeks? Um, and so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting question that I certainly can't wait to see what, what happens. I think everyone who's on this panel certainly can't wait either. Yeah, we have we have three weeks and that's the perfect springboard into our next segment. And I wanted to talk about early voting, which kicked off yesterday. It'll stretch for three weeks, as uh, as Renee mentioned, until about January 1st. We have two Senate races on the ballot, as well as the, the Public Service Commission runoff. And according to the website Georgia Votes, about 168,000 Georgians voted in person yesterday. That's in addition to about 314,000 who have voted by mail so far. And of course, that's a tiny fraction of the the final, or sorry, of the final total that will ultimately come out. Um, but it still is a pretty strong showing. And Ryan Anderson, who runs the Georgia Votes uh, website, notes that uh, based on the the first day of early voting, it's a 23 percent increase from uh, from what we saw on the first day of early voting in the general. Um, and and Karen, let's let's start there. Um, what what's your read on on the numbers we've seen so far, and and what are you going to be looking for in the days ahead in terms of uh, enthusiasm and the turnout we might see? 
So I think there's a couple of things. One, we see that there is strong interest when you have almost 170,000 people going to early vote in the middle still of a pandemic. And when numbers are rising in Georgia, that they are um, very engaged and want to go ahead and cast their vote. I think that the interesting thing will be how many people do go vote early to get it done before the holidays so that their mind can shift to other things and they can start turning off the election pieces. Um, A couple of things that I'm interested in that has been uh, kind of on the Georgia Votes website is you'll see that there were about 7% of 2020 runoff early vote applications of people who did not vote in the general election. So I'll be interested to see if those individuals, that 7% of new kind of voters actually do vote. And we did see that, you know, yesterday about 2% or so did kind of start to, to turn in their ballots or cast a ballot. And will that actually drive some interest because you've got more people who now want to engage in the Senate? And are those really going to be voters who are suddenly saying, wait, I want to check on Biden, so I'm going to support Republican senators? Or are those voters who say, nope, I'm with this Biden agenda and I want two Democrats to be in place so that that agenda can move forward? Heath, we've seen Republican officials, including David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, start to to talk about mail-in voting for Republicans. And this comes after, of course, the, the president uh, for months talking about how that, that could lead to widespread fraud. Do you think that, that Georgia Republicans are going to be able to, to help the reputation of mail-in voting? And, and will they be able to do that in time for this runoff? Yeah, there's no question the president's put the Republicans in a tight box by uh, trashing the concept of mail-in voting really since the summertime. Uh, and the Abrams apparatus, and I, with all due respect, she, she's obviously put together a great grassroots on-the-ground game. They were ready for absentee voting and mail-in voting in a way that Republicans were not in the general election. Uh, there's no question that Republicans won early voting and won Election Day voting in Georgia, but lost in the absentee ballot phase of the election. And Prior to yesterday, it looked like more Democrats were pulling absentee ballots and registering and starting to send those in than Republicans. Um, So I think that David Perdue and Kelly Leffler have the tough job of trying to explain that it is a safe way to vote if you can't come early. But let's be clear, we as Republicans have, have kind of bet the farm Uh, We've invested all of our time and money in in in-person voting, which means that early voting has got to be big for us. We've got to have Election Day voting, uh, and we've got to try to make a dent in that absentees uh, and those absentee votes. And I'm with Karen. There are all these folks who didn't vote, right, in the general election who have an opportunity to do so here. Uh, And and the Republicans, we've got to kind of flex our grassroots and get back to winning in the early voting and Election Day in larger numbers and I want to also say that Renee has said something very important. The question is, Trump was the biggest motivator for both Republicans and Democrats in November. And without him on the ballot, I think the fundamental question for Democrats is, can they get everybody back out to vote? Because we are fighting to check the Biden administration, um, but you can't vote necessarily against Donald Trump on January the 5th. And Howard, there there are some promising signs for for Democrats. It looks like the the racial breakdown for some of these absentee ballots are are more non-white than what we saw in the general election. Is is that a good sign to you? And what else are you looking for? Yeah, I think absolutely, Tamar. I think that is a great sign for just one day of early voting. I think the number is hovering right around thirty three percent. 
Um, and that is African-American and black turnout generally is, at least in Georgia, the bellwether for how well Democrats can hope to do come Election Day. And as we all know, the hope or the expectation is that Democrats will build uh, an early voting lead through absentee balloting, maybe to his point, catching up on in-person uh, voting and then expect that a number of the Trump supporters or, or Republicans who want to see Purdue and Leffler return will show up on Election Day. I think certainly tracking what these numbers look like and how close we can stay uh, to 33 percent of African-American as a part of the electorate is a, a really important bellwether. And as you guys probably remember, during the general election, we also started out strong, but, but I think ended up just shy of 30 percent. Uh, when it got down to the November 3rd election. So that's that's going to be a, a very important indicator going forward. Renee? Yeah, I, I just wanted to uh, comment on something that, that he said about Trump not being on the ballot. I think he's, he's, he's right on. It's, it's uh, certainly, you know, the elephant that has left the room, right? But I do, you know, you can't help but watch uh, the the ads. And the ads are positioned as, say, for the Republicans, anti-immigrant, that, that hurts when it comes to all things Hispanic vote, especially with the level of acculturation of Hispanics in the state of Georgia. For the, for the most part, we have an uncle, a father, a mother who is an immigrant, right? We also see a complete ignoring of COVID in Georgia by a lot of the ads that are out, out but from the Republican Party. The, the Hispanic community is, has been hurt so badly by COVID. I think hospitalizations are four and a half times the rate of the general market. And that, that you know, we're watching, and that's just not reflecting what's going on in, in our Hispanic homes. So while Trump might not be on the ballot, Certainly, there are messages that are on the ballot that, that the Hispanic community are certainly uh, looking for and queued up to vote against. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this is this is 2020 and nothing is without controversy. Just like uh, early voting these last couple couple weeks, there, there's been uh, a lot of points of contention that I'd like the, the panel to weigh in on. Uh, there's some folks complaining that there are fewer early voting days because sites will be closed for two Fridays for, for Christmas and New Year's. Uh, there are some counties that are offering uh, fewer weekend uh, voting options, um, unlike the general election. And we've also... Uh, and um, we've seen counties like Cobb that have responded by adding a couple more precincts after announcing that they were going to be shutting down a, a couple compared to, to the general. And um, Heath, uh, you know, we this isn't necessarily new. There, there's always criticism about kind of the rules of the road, especially when it comes to, to early votes. But uh, I'd like you to kind of weigh in here. Absolutely, Tamara. Like, look, uh, runoffs in Georgia are a complete... Uh, process and legal mess. Let's just call it that, right? Our runoff for federal elections in Georgia is nine weeks, which will always put it the first Tuesday after New Year's. And that was done by a federal judge, not by the legislature. That was a that was a settlement agreement years ago with a federal judge because of military overseas ballots. So we kind of have the tail wagging the dog and how we do this. And on top of that, we had this massive expansion in early voting precincts in the general election because of the anticipated largest turnout in modern history. 
So when we go back to the normal number of precincts in early voting, it feels like, oh, we've reduced the capacity or uh, something's up. But in reality, it's going back to a more normal uh, setting. And because we have early voting during Christmas, during or actually Hanukkah, Christmas, uh, New Year's, all those things going on, it's not going to look and feel like that. I don't think there's any suppression going on, but I do think this goes back to the legislature needing to address how we're going to do uh, uh, runoffs in the future because they're probably going to be common for the next decade or so as Georgia becomes a 50-50 state. Uh, and I think that it, in a big year like this where we're going to have huge turnout even in the runoff, it's going to create some capacity issues. And Howard, we've had some local uh, elections officials talk about some of the issues that that have faced them. First of all, we saw the elections director in Cobb mention that th- there simply weren't enough poll managers to, to staff these early voting sites. They had exhausted election workers who ended up quitting after after the, the hand recounts. Um, you have some who said, look, we planned this months ago before we knew we'd have dual runoffs or or it's a shorter ballot. So we don't need as many folks uh, at the same time. Howard, we've heard lots of folks say that that closing all of these odor, early voting sites is is akin to voter suppression. What do you make of that? Yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to counties, uh, in part because I represent a few of them at the Georgia General Assembly, but also because we know the pandemic is still affecting the revenues. We know they want to protect uh, their employees, uh, their volunteers, et cetera. But I think we do want to dispel a notion here around runoffs. Uh, you know, runoffs are not structurally lower turnout exercises in general elections. We've had multiple runoff elections that have turned out more voters than <clears throat> than the actual general. Uh, just recently, especially at the municipal level, the 2017 and the 2009 mayor's races saw significantly more voters uh, in the runoffs than we saw in the actual general. And that's, I think, largely in races or in cases where uh, we're distilling the choice that voters have, right? I think the, the mayor's race in 2017 had something like 14 candidates. We get down to two, more people show up. So ultimately, campaigns and elections are really an exercise in, you know, using three resources, people, time, and money. And traditionally, runoffs have a shorter amount of time, as, as uh, he pointed out, and they typically have less money to spend as well. And I don't, I don't know at least in this case, that we will see less money spent on TV, on radio, on outreach, on paid communications than we saw in the state of Georgia for the general election. So I just, I, you know, I, I totally understand the, the, the desire to, you know, be good stewards of government resources. But I think also as, as we have, you know, more competitive runoffs, it might make sense uh, to, to recalibrate, as, as he suggested, how we, how we plan for these and whether or not they deserve the same amount of attention as general elections, because let's face it, this one is for all the marbles. This this is the election cycle we can't afford to get wrong. Karen? So I was just going to say, you know, Howard makes the point really interesting about municipal races and runoffs, and, and they generate a lot of attention, and thus turnout goes up. But if you look at a federal race, which is somewhat akin to where we are right now, which is the 2008 contest in that Senate race between Chambliss and Martin, turnout did drop significantly, you know, 25, 30%. And so that is where counties and states look at the past to think about 
staffing and what a runoff election could be. And so there were decisions made by the counties back in the summer, even though coming off of a primary that was really, you know, heavily involved with the voters, they had to start making decisions about what they needed. And I think one thing that we definitely have to think about is the workers. Not only were they fatigued from the recounts and everything like that, some of them probably feel that this is just not worth their time because of threats that have come or that the fact that the process just seems really difficult. And I think that counties have had to adjust to that and think about those situations. Heath, you're going to get the last word before we take a break. Well, and on top of all this, remember, this is going to be the most expensive non-presidential race in U.S. history, right, going on in the middle of all these holidays in the state of Georgia with burned out poll workers, burned out election supervisors, and not enough space. So money drives votes, and we will see real votes showing up. Howard, you want to weigh in real quick? Yeah, just, you know, I know we talk about the 08 race, and I want, I want to remind everybody that Democrats have full control of the Senate going into 2009, so the stakes could not be higher here. I think that will certainly impact what turnout looks like. All right, let's take our first break here, but stay with us. We'll be right back with more Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut today. Bill will be back tomorrow. Our panel today is Renee Allegrio of, of Mundo Hispanico, Democratic strategist Howard Franklin, political science professor Dr. Karen Owen, and Republican political strategist Heath Garrett. Um, so next, I'd like to turn to the real reason I invited this this particular panel together. I want to talk about what this electorate is going to look like in the runoff elections. You know, in the general, we saw a record-breaking 5 million Georgians cast their ballots. Um, but Karen, I think it's pretty safe to assume that the electorate we're going to see for January is going to be fundamentally different. Uh, traditionally, runoffs are pretty low turnout affairs. In the eight statewide runoffs we've seen since 1992, turnout has dropped from upwards of 45%, sometimes to as much as 90%. We're certainly not expecting that this time around because control of the Senate's at stake. But what are you expecting to see in the electorate? And um, will it be fundamentally different than the, than the general? So I think that we will see a slip in turnout. I mean, I think that there will be those voters who are who are now disengaged. They uh, are no longer interested. They're turning their focus somewhere else. I think part of that coalition will be to get young voters back out. The Democrats need uh, young voters to turn out. Um, they will be a challenge to reinvigorate. At the top of the hour on NPR, we heard from you know, those voters who did not participate at all in the general election were young voters and those with less education and, and less income. And again, I think here in the state, it will be tough to reach those, especially particularly like for us, like college students, we are no longer in session. Um, our campus, you know, young Democrats, college Republicans, even though they're making efforts to get out and talk to the students, it's still challenging. They're away now. Um, I think that you will have a difference in racial background. I think 
of who comes back to the polls. I even think, too, right now we've seen just yesterday in early voting, more women are voting. Um, again, it will be can uh, Republicans attract some maybe moderate suburban Republican women who say, or were Republican maybe voting women in the past and now say, hey, come back and, and kind of put the brakes on where Biden will be and, and provide more of a check for the Senate? Yeah, in the general election, young people ended up making up a, a record-setting 20% of the electorate in Georgia, which is extremely high. As Karen said, they're, they're traditionally a tough, group, a tough group to turn out. And actually, Georgia's youth participation rate was was far higher than, than most other states in the country. But Heath, COVID is presenting such a unique obstacle this year. As Karen mentioned, students are gone for the, the semester already. I think a lot of folks don't really know where they're, they're going to be. Talk to me about that. No, it, it absolutely is a real factor, right? It's also one of the controversies of this uh, runoff, right? If you're a student who left Georgia, went off to college somewhere, you registered to vote, let's say in New York or California or even next door in Alabama, and you've come home for Christmas, right, uh, for New Year's, and you voted in November, in theory, there were people trying to say, hey, register to vote here because it's, quote, a new election. Uh, obviously, there's some uh, legal issues with that. I think that's dampening some youth uh, turnout uh, out there because people are out there concerned about whether they can or can't vote. But there's no question, early voting and absentees, uh, I think Howard said it exactly right. We're seeing higher minority participation than normal. It's people of color, not just African-Americans. But we're, I think both campaigns are focused right now as a base, what I call a base-only campaign, right? Uh, was get out our bases, and then Republicans believe they'll win, Democrats believe they'll win. I actually think that the campaigns that do base plus, we, you said it just a minute ago, independent men and independent women who want to vote uh, are feeling like the Democratic Party at the national level have left them, and maybe they didn't like the Trump uh, image of the Republican Party, but they do care about good government. Are they going to come back and vote? Uh, I do think for the first three weeks, uh, Raphael Warnock and Ossoff did a better job of appealing, but I've seen David Perdue and Kelly Leffler now make a turn and appeal to that base plus, and now we're fighting over those independent voters in the suburbs again. Renee, we, we saw both parties put a real emphasis on em or registering new voters uh, since the November 3rd elections, and especially Democrats focused on registering young people. They, they estimated there are about 23,000 young Georgians who have turned 18 since November 3rd who they were rushing to register. We don't know exactly uh, what the numbers are yet. Brad Raffensperger has been under pressure to, to release data about that sooner rather than later. Uh, but weigh in here, Renee. Yeah, I, listen, I, I think that just to kind of piggyback on 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 what the, the the point of discussion with with the challenges of vo voting in a, you know in a, in a in this type of election, it's it's been a tough year for everybody, right? I mean, here we are at the end of 2020. We made it. Um, it's the holidays. There's a there's a lot going on that yes is just mentally difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Oh, we have to vote again. But I you know like we discussed, you know the world is watching this election. Everyone is talking about where Georgia is going to land. Will Georgia push uh, the Senate blue or red? I, you know, I, I can certainly speak uh, to the Hispanic community in, in Georgia. You know, at Mundo Hispanico, we, we cover um, 
you know, all, the, all of the stories we, we publish really are, are through the lens of uh, the immigrant story, right, the American story. And I can certainly tell you that when you have someone like uh, Kamala Harris on, on the ticket, it does galvanize us. That's a, that's a, a daughter of an immigrant, right? She is the epitome of success for our immigrant parents, right? It's voting for someone. And I think that we, we need to remember that when it comes to just not just Hispanic voters, but Asian voters, any other immigrant group that are going to tip the, the scale uh, one way or the other. Howard, traditionally, Democrats have, have not done well in statewide runoffs in Georgia. They've lost all eight of the last statewide contests since 1992. And tradi- traditionally, even with general elections, they struggle more with getting some of their core constituencies out, including young voters, people of color. How are you feeling based on what you've seen so far? And, and what are the big challenges for Democrats right now? Yeah, those are all really important questions. Um, you know, I, I should just piggyback on something that Renee mentioned earlier. I talked a bit about um, African-Americans making up 33% of the first day <clears throat> of early voting. And also really important to acknowledge that, you know, Asian-Americans, uh, Latinx voters also have seen huge upticks, double-digit increases during the general election, and we have to have everybody engaged. Obviously, Democrats do well when there's a large, broad coalition pulling in the same direction. I still think there's plenty of impetus for that to be the case by January 5th. You know, I, we talked earlier before we started the show about a number of groups that we have engaged with and worked on behalf of that have traditionally not gotten uh, disinvolved, especially in statewide races. They have picked their their spots uh, in state legislative races or on uh, issues like ballot referenda. But we've been working for the Georgia uh, Muslim Voter Project, the NAACP, the Asian American Advocacy Fund, the uh, Galeo's Impact Fund, the Georgia Conservation Voters, in addition to of the traditional sort of enterprise players like the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. So, you know, I don't want to overlook the value and the import of the mechanics of reaching out to voters. And I think, you know, we talk about all the losses that Democrats have suffered the last generation uh, in statewide runoffs. I think a lot of that was also absent the machinery to really reach out to those folks to give them the access to the ballot that we needed or to just show them how important their vote ultimately was. And I think in this case, this is a very much a nationalized race. I think Democrats and Republicans are leaning into the fact that it has national implications. And for all those previous races, I think more often than not, Democrats are running from uh, the National Democratic Party and, and Republicans were taking advantage of that dichotomy. So I feel like we're, we're headed in a, in a good place. I think another few days of early voting uh, statistics will definitely give us a better bellwether. Karen? So I was going to say, you know, he's made a really valid point about how each party has to add to the base. And runoffs are about generating, getting the grassroots mobilization to get your base back out. But it's those independents that tip you over that edge. And I think we're going to see the Democrats with today bringing Biden in are talking to the moderates of the party to get them excited to want to vote for Ossoff and Warnock, who are not right now being portrayed as very moderate, but have a very progressive liberal that will align with the national liberal um, parts of the Senate. And, you know, if you look back at the exit polling from Georgia, about 38 percent of the voters said they were moderate. 
and 40 percent said they were conservative. So I think the Democrats bringing Biden in, that makes sense. He's, you know, perceived as this moderate person. Now, the thing will be for the Republicans. Who can they bring in? Who will they actually say, look, you know, we're speaking to a broader piece than just maybe that Trump base? Well, well, we'll talk a little bit more later in the show about Biden's visit to Metro Atlanta today. But, Renee, I'd like to talk to you about uh, a real bright spot uh, f- uh, in the Latino community in the general election. We saw an increase in Georgia of 72 percent between 2016 and 2020 for Latino turnout. So talk to me about that and, and kind of what we saw um, from Latino voters in Georgia. Were they mostly turning out for, for Joe Biden or, or was President Trump able to, to peel off many of those voters? I, listen, I, one, I do think that it's it's uh, just an amazing time to be Hispanic in Georgia. Georgia has certainly uh, come of age, if you will, with regard to how Latinos are contributing to uh, the political process, commerce, um, you, you name it, you know, it, Georgia is is a place where Hispanic immigrants are coming to. Right, they're they're not they're they're moving away from Miami. They're moving away from New York. They're moving away from Puerto Rico, Orlando. Where are they landing? They're landing in Atlanta. They're landing in the surrounding areas, and that's changing everything in Georgia and the discourse of what it what Georgia used to be, which was generally a, a black and white conversation. Now we're certainly looking at Georgia being a, a much broader place for uh, individuals of all, all stripes, right? I, I do think, though, that, you know, when we're, we're talking about, say, the youth vote, you know, the median age of the Hispanic in Georgia is in their late 20s, right? What does that mean? As as we, as we our numbers grow here, um, we're really here to stay for a very long time. We are the, the you know, the political future of of this state, um, our, our vote will decide elections. And so, you know, I mean, it's a very exciting time to be uh, uh, Hispanic in, in the state of Georgia. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're certainly contributing to, to the process. Keith, a big surprise nationally, I think, to at least some folks in the national media was was how well the president ended up doing with Latinos in certain border counties in places like Texas, places like Arizona. And talk to me about how you think Georgia Republicans might internalize that that message and maybe shift uh, what they're doing to appeal to Latino voters, either in these runoffs or in the years to come. Absolutely. Uh, tomorrow, one of the prime mistakes that the president's campaign made was not doing a similar appeal to Latinx voters in Georgia, like what they did in spending money in Florida and Texas uh, and in Arizona. Uh, There's no question that the Latinx population in the United States of America is the next battleground independent voter, gettable by both sides. You know, Republicans don't have to win necessarily 55% of the Hispanic vote, but has the potential to get 40, 45%. And of course, the president had a unique juxtaposition on the one hand, he was sending messaging that seemed was, or, or at times was anti-immigrant, but at the same time was appealing to the entrepreneurial and the social conservative nature of some of the Latinx families uh, in the country. And so I think that we as Georgians have to be smart about this. Johnny Isaacson in 2016 ran the first uh, Spanish-only Republican ads uh, in the state of Georgia and outperformed the president by five percentage points, right, because he was appealing to African-American and to uh, uh, Latin uh, uh, folks, and so I think that was important. This year, I was able to run the first uh, Spanish-only language ad 
uh, for a state legislator as a Republican, and it got uh, a lot of great feedback. So I think smart Republicans are going to be uh, spending a lot of time with Renee and, and with others looking at this uh, demographic as it grows and, and have a natural appeal to it. But we got to do a better job in our rhetoric and our tone and the language we use and in the policies that we pursue. Howard, I'll give you the last word before our next break. Yeah, I think it's worth just a chuckle and, uh, you know, the a tip of my hat to Heath for the way he described uh, the president, an interesting juxtaposition. I think that certainly is a creative way to talk about how he bounces back and forth between the issues. I, I think Renee already has made this point really well. I think it's going to be very difficult for the Republican Party anywhere in the states that he's named. I think they're absolutely continue to be battlegrounds. But while the National Republican Party you know, expresses an anti-immigrant sentiment or expresses, um, you know, anti-minority xenophobic sentiments, you know, locking down borders, uh, you know, uh, talking about asshole countries, et cetera. It's going to be difficult for individual state parties to be successful with those folks. And I think that, again, I think this is an opportunity for the Democratic Party to become an even larger tent uh, while these races are running. We have to get to our final break. Stick around and we'll be right back with more Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut. Let's jump right back in. Our panel today is Renee Alegria from Mundo Hispanico, Democratic strategist Howard Franklin, Republican strategist Heath Garrett, and political science professor Dr. Karen Owen. Uh, Renee, you wanted to weigh in on uh, the uh, Hispanic vote, and and let's do that quickly before we talk about Biden's visit. Listen, I I, I just wanted to point out the obvious, that The state of Georgia is not South Florida, it's not Miami-Dade, and it's not the Rio Grande Valley. Um, There are certain complexities within the Hispanic community in the state of Georgia that individuals need to understand better in order to have their party prevail. What you thought you knew about Georgia four years ago is no longer the case now. And in another four years, it's going to be that much more different. So it's 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 dynamic. Right. And I, I just want to make that clear with regard to how individuals uh, message to Hispanics. You can't just overlay, you know, the Hispanics in Gwinnett as Miami-Dade. And you I've seen a lot of folks make that mistake, and they 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 walk into uh, into what is usually um, a, a door slamming in their face. All right. Well. I'd like to spend the last few minutes of the show talking about Joe Biden's visit to Georgia. He's going to be doing a drive-in rally this afternoon in Northeast Atlanta. Um, and first of all, I think that the fact that he's taking time to come at all during his transition period is notable given what happened during the during Georgia's last uh, statewide Senate runoff in November uh, 2008. Uh, Democratic nominee Jim Martin was desperate for President-elect Barack Obama to to visit Georgia, especially to rally black voters. But the president-elect skipped out. This was when um, 
Democrats and and maybe President Obama believed they were kind of post-partisanship and the president wanted to focus on on you know, kind of building up his administration. And it does look like black turnout really suffered um, in that race. Jim Barton ended up losing by about 15 percentage points to to Saxby Chambliss. And um, Howard, why don't we start with you and, and talk about how you think Biden's visit, whether whether it will really help Ossoff and Warnock, especially with some of those key demographics we were talking about, young voters, people of color. Yeah, I just, you know, I know we're going to have forever as Democrats uh, the 2008 runoff hung around our necks, at least until we win one uh, in January. But that said, I just I want to acknowledge that Barack Obama himself as a candidate also pulled out of Georgia, did not win the state, was five or so, five or almost six percentage points behind. And so probably did not see um, an arena or battleground where he could actually effectively move Jim Martin to the wing column. And I think that's a big part of the reason that we did not see a, a visit from our president at the time. Um, you know, fast forward um, to 2020, Joe Biden did win the state of Georgia. He did about putting together an impressive and diverse coalition of voters uh, that spans virtually every demographic across this entire state. And I think um, to a point that was made earlier by Karen, his visit to Northeast Atlanta speaks to needing to reach out to moderates. He's obviously someone who, who can do that. He's got you know, a long political history and a, and a political brand that is, that is steeped in moderation. I do absolutely believe that his visit and the visit of other uh, Democratic and political luminaries will certainly help Ossoff and Warnock. And I, just, I also want to just acknowledge that Ossoff and Warnock are a great duo themselves. They're young. They're vibrant. They're, you know, they're really on the vanguard of important issues that the Democratic Party has wed itself to. And I think there's some there's some upside to their willingness to talk about the economy and the pandemic and how the two are really interwoven. I think that's a message that moderates uh, will find attractive. Karen, you're talking about figures that that Republicans could bring to Georgia to especially help win over uh, moderate uh, voters. And I wonder if there's anyone that that sticks out to you in your mind. Uh, And also worth noting that Vice President Pence is going to be returning to Georgia on Thursday for a spot in uh, for a stop in Columbus. And he's been here quite a bit in the lead up to the runoff. Well, that's probably the best question left to Heath because he's the Republican strategist and he would know. But I would say that the Republicans here, you know, they need to think, you know, a visit by Pence is always great. He seems to be able to attract voters and and appeal to an evangelical moderate type um, with some of his rhetoric. I'm not sure. And again, he probably should uh, talk about this, but it's probably best that maybe those who are not trying to be president in 2024, maybe don't come. But I don't I mean, he definitely knows more than I do on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tomorrow, I think Vice President Pence is the perfect combination. He's not exactly President Trump, so it's not a reminder to Democrats uh, so much of what they were motivated by. Uh, but he does have credibility within the base. I do think you've got to add in State Senator Tim, or U.S. Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina has been a couple of times. Uh, he'll come back. He's a great appeal. I think uh, Nikki Haley is a great uh, person that you can bring into the northern suburbs of Atlanta and help these uh, folks uh, come out. I think there's some of the cabinet members. You know, and I, again, I always lament, but if Parkinson's wasn't such a factor with Johnny Isaacson's uh, life, he's the kind of person that these two senators need to be emulating in their campaigns in order to appeal to the northern suburbs. And that's just sorely lacking at the moment. I think Kelly does have a couple of new ads up that are going to help in that regard, but they may have to do it on their own. All right, Renee, we have about a minute left. Give us our last word. Sure. I, listen, I, when when uh, 
the, the stark difference in leadership images right now are 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 something that, that folks are talking about right when when biden hits georgia um it's it's really going to be such a such a difference from say the president trump right now who's bunkered himself and i think that right there uh helps excite the democrat base as well as uh pockets of voters that i think will come out for january 5th all right, Renee, you get the last word. That's all the time we have for uh, Political Rewind today. I'd like to thank our guests, Renee Alegria, Howard Franklin, Heath Garrett, and Dr. Karen Owen. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow. Bill Nygut will be back at his microphone. I'm Tamar Hallerman. Thanks for joining us today and have a safe rest of your day.